Hello and welcome to the Lancet Podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Friday, June the 29th. Now here is a familiar voice. In the 1960s, more than 2 million people died from smallpox every year. Just over a decade later, that number was zero. Two million to zero, thanks in part to Dr. Bill Fagey. As a young medical missionary working in Nigeria, Bill helped develop a vaccination strategy that would later be used to eliminate smallpox from the face of the earth. And when that war was won, he moved on to other diseases, always trying to figure out what works. Uh, In one remote Nigerian village, uh, after vaccinating 2,000 people in a single day, Bill asked the local chief how he had gotten so many people to show up, and the chief explained that he had told everyone to come see, uh, to come to the village and see the tallest man in the world. (laughs) Today, that world owes uh, that really tall man uh, a great debt of gratitude. This week, we are focusing on a remarkable individual, Dr. Bill Fagey, who was recently honoured with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award in the United States, and he was given that award at the end of May by none other than President Barack Obama. This award was given to Fagey for his outstanding contribution over the past half century in both public health in the United States and more broadly on the international scene with his immense contribution to global health. Dr. Fagey is the subject of a profile in the current issue of The Lancet, dated June 30th to July the 6th. I had the pleasure of speaking to Bill Fagey recently, and I began by asking his thoughts about the global economic crisis and what negative impact that could have on global health. It will obviously have an impact, but it won't change the fundamental thing that has happened, which is people have become interested in global health. And they weren't in the past. I was back at my school, the University of Washington, and said 50 years ago, I couldn't find three people on the faculty that were interested in global health. And now everyone is. It's the single most important issue for students in both the medical school and the School of Public Health. The faculty is very much involved. So there's a change in attitude that people do, in fact, see the world as being uh, important to them locally. And that wasn't true in the past. We could ignore the rest of the world. That won't change. The other thing that won't change is that even with the economic downturn, the tools have continued to improve. And much of this is because of the increased interest of the last decade. I often say that when I was born 76 years ago, my mother left a baby book, and in it only two vaccines are mentioned. Now we use 18 to 20 routinely and another dozen at times. That will continue. And so even with an economic downturn, you now have tools you didn't have in the past. I think this is a temporary problem because of the tools, the interest, the political interest, the fact that communications and transportation, all of these things have changed. Sure, it's a problem, but it's not a problem forever. Can you just just paint a little picture as to how it came to be you were working on smallpox and how you ended up in eastern Nigeria and that extraordinary story of of the ring vaccination that went on there. Can you you just run through that little phase? 
It was the uh, Soviet Union and the U.S. that came together to promote this at WHO, and then with the decision at WHO to attempt smallpox eradication within 10 years, the U.S. agreed to take primary interest in West and Central Africa in 20 countries, with CDC doing the technical work and USAID supporting it financially. I was in Nigeria. I had been interested in smallpox and had presented a paper on it, in fact, at Harvard in Tom Weller's class, What Are the Chances of Smallpox Eradication? But I never expected to be involved in it. I went to eastern Nigeria quite specifically to see if I could introduce prevention into medical missions. The medical missions had a reason to like clinics and hospitals because some of them use this as a proselytizing tool. And people become very grateful if they've been cured of something in a clinic or hospital. If you give them measles vaccine, they don't know that they were supposed to get measles. So they don't even know to thank someone specifically. My whole thought was that uh, church groups should be working on medicine because of what they believed, not because of what they hoped other people would believe. And that you should do this with no thought of proselytizing at all. So that was my big mission, is to figure out how to get prevention uh, introduced. Now, in retrospect, I wasted my time because the World Council of Churches had uh, a, a plan to do this, and a fellow by the name of Jim McGilvery really did such a great job that that whole idea was changing in front of my eyes. And uh, But nonetheless, that's why I was there. And CDC asked me if I would become a consultant on the smallpox eradication program in eastern Nigeria where I was living. And I agreed to do that, went back to a training course at CDC, and then uh, back to Nigeria. Because of the fact that I already lived there, we had a head start. And so in December of 66, a month before the program was to start, I became involved in a an outbreak in a remote area, but our supplies had not yet arrived. And so now I was in the middle of a smallpox outbreak, but didn't have enough vaccine. And so the three of us from CDC literally asked the question, if we would be a smallpox virus bent on immortality, what would we do next? And of course, what you do next is you find a susceptible person. Then you you have to know how people are moving in that area to figure out where the susceptible people are and so forth. But we got on the radio that first night with a network of missionaries who always got on their shortwave radios at 7 o'clock at night to make sure that there were no emergencies. And when we got on, I was able to map out the area and give a, a geographic area to each missionary and ask if they would send runners to every village, and we would check back 24 hours later to see which villages had smallpox. So 24 hours later, we had an exact picture of where the smallpox virus was. And we used most of our vaccine in the villages with smallpox. We used the remainder of the vaccine in three places we thought it would move because of market patterns and, uh, and family patterns. In those three areas, what we did not know is the virus had already moved and it was incubating. 
But by the time the first cases appeared, we'd already vaccinated those three areas. And so smallpox just stopped dead within weeks, and we'd only done a fraction of the people. We were not thinking big at that time. We were just trying to... Dealing with a problem that was happening. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But then we got wondering, could you do this on a larger scale? And so the next thing we did was to talk to the Ministry of Eastern Nigeria. And interestingly, they became interested in this, and I think for all the wrong reasons. They, uh, this was just before the Nigerian Biafran Civil War. There were bad feelings between the federal government and the East. And I think the East was willing to do anything that would irritate the federal government, including getting uh, off track with the strategy on smallpox. So they were willing to let us try this. So then we set up a surveillance system trying to find where the, the outbreaks were. And at this time, the federal government thought we were going too fast. And they said, this is a national program. And they cut off our supplies, saying as soon as the other regions caught up, then we could have more supplies. Fagy was director of the United States Centers for Disease Control, CDC, between 1977 and 1983. What was it like, though, being head of CDC? Because you tackled industry, didn't you? You took on the aspirin manufacturers over the Ray syndrome story. It was exciting. I used to say being the director of CDC was a bit like having test week in medical school every week. You were just flooded with information. What I liked during test week uh, was how often things came together. And you'd say, oh, now I understand. I mean, here you'd been studying a subject for weeks, and test week somehow brought things together. That's the way it was at CDC every week. I would say, oh, now I understand. What was nice, though, in test week, you're doing this by yourself. At CDC, you had such a, a team of people that you could call on. You didn't have to know all the details of everything. And I, I loved that job. That was so interesting. And you could see the improvement. I mean, when we were able to break measles transmission, for instance, that's tangible proof that a government program can make a difference for an entire people. Into the 80s now, and after CDC, um, the task force for, for child survival, and followed by an invitation to head up the Carter Center. The task force, I mean, this is clearly uh, this is global health, clearly, it's, it's looking at, at child survival. How and why did that come about at that time, which was about 1983, 84? I think one of the problems then and one of the problems now is that we have some difficulty in the way we organize globally for global health. I wish we had a way of saying, okay, we now have 60 years' experience with uh, WHO and UNICEF and all of this. What have we learned and how could we reorganize to make it better? But in 19. 19- 83, Hofton Mahler, the director of WHO, and Jim Grant, the director of UNICEF, came to me, just the two of them, no one else, and they said, we both have sufficiently big egos that we sometimes have trouble getting along. If that's true, you can understand that our agencies sometimes have trouble sure. getting along. And we don't like the fact that we both go into countries with slightly different messages on immunization, and then it becomes a rivalry. And they ask whether 
I would be willing to establish a task force and never use the word coordinate because no one wants to be coordinated, but to have a, a, a work group that could work out some of these problems between WHO and UNICEF and World Bank and UNDP in the area of immunization to make it easier to uh, have a global approach rather than an agency approach. Now, what's interesting here is you have to have the heads of agencies understanding that to make it work. You can't have someone lower down in the agency trying to coordinate that way and make it work. Well, we had a meeting then at Bellagio sponsored by Rockefeller, and we got the head of WHO, the head of UNICEF, the head of UNDP, the head of the World Bank, the head of USAID. I mean, just it was an incredible group of people. Jonas Salk, Robert McNamara. Everyone wanted to improve global immunization rates, and so they approved this idea of a, a, a task force. Robert McNamara said if we could raise $100 million new dollars for immunization, it would change everything. Most people argued there's no way of doing that. If we got $100 million for immunization, it would come from someplace else in global health. Two years later, we would not have settled for $100 million. Now the world thought there was a plan, even though there wasn't. And they were willing to contribute to a plan. Money follows a plan. Italy alone gave $100 million for immunization in Africa. Suddenly we had resources, and the task force didn't do any immunizations. It just made sure every three months that the key people from every agency uh, sat down someplace in the world and went through the issues to make sure we were all working together. And what happened in six years, we went from immunization levels of, what, 10, 15, 20 percent to Jim Grant announcing September 30th, uh, 1990, that we had reached 80 percent of children with some vaccine. Tell us a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about the Carter Center. How did that come about? Was it, was it actually a direct invitation from President Carter to, to take over the reins? It was, and he was looking for a place that he could promote peace, a place where people could come together when they had disputes. He was trying to replicate Camp David with uh, Egypt in Israel so that it would be a place where if there were people were interested in democracy and voting, they could come and get advice and help, that there would be a place where people would be willing to uh, monitor elections and that sort of thing. And he told me that he would be willing to do global health if I would come to the Carter Center. You know, he turned out to be just what was needed because every public health decision ultimately goes back to a political decision. Same thing in global health. Now we had President Carter able to go to the heads of state. And when he would sit down with the heads of state to talk about river blindness or guinea worm, they would, of course, have their Minister of Health there. But it means a different thing for the Minister of Health when they see their head of state discussing this issue. Tell me about the Gates Foundation, because a lot of people in the world have heard of Bill Gates, and quite a few people are aware that his foundation is a huge donor to global health programs. How did you become connected with him? And I believe you, you actually influenced his thinking really fundamentally. Didn't you direct him towards a 1993 report? <laughs> First of all, I have to 
deny any claims of having influenced their thinking. Bill and Melinda Gates would have come to every conclusion they've come to if I had never existed. They become interested in a subject and they research it and and so forth. Uh, He had originally asked his father to uh, look into this. His father had gone to the Rockefeller Foundation and asked questions about what are the problems, what could be done, and so forth. And a, a Steve Sindic at the Rockefeller Foundation suggested to Bill Sr. that he also talk to me at some point. That's how I got involved. So I went to Seattle, and I tell you, this is a great family, and, and Bill Sr. is such a fine, fine person, really wants to understand what is the problem, what could be done, what they could do, and so forth. They had taken the idea of immunization as their uh, first priority. What you're referring to on the 1993 bank report is early on, I was asked if I would assemble some books on global health to provide to uh, Bill and Melinda. And the person that had worked with them said, and you know, don't be... Um, don't give them two books. Give them a chance to to spread out and, and really see the field a little bit. But I didn't know how many books that meant. Well, I ended up giving them 83. <laughs> how many, books. sorry? 83 books. <laughs> Just 83. Yes, because, you know, I went to people like Adi Takumbo Lucas and said, okay, if you could give them one book, what would it be? His first book on his list was Ladder of Bones. I don't know if you've read that book. But it's the story of Europeans going to Nigeria in the early days. I haven't. It's well known, but I, I haven't got to it yet. But thank you. I'll put it on my reading list. And so we assembled the books. So it wasn't just a list of books. We assembled them and sent the boxes over. And the next time I saw uh, Bill Gates, I asked him whether he had a chance to look at any of this. And he said, oh, yeah, I've read 17 of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's now, a good start. Oh, goodness. You know, it would take me three years to do that. And... I asked him which one he liked best so far, and he said the 1993 World Bank Report with the disability-adjusted life years. Right. And for me, this is a real breakthrough because in public health, we've always had this difficulty of comparing mortality and morbidity. And this at least makes an attempt at saying we can put these two numbers together and come up with a single number. It has problems with it, but they're not insurmountable problems. But... He had already looked at this and liked it, and he began talking about what was wrong with the formula. No one had briefed him on this. He had gone into the details himself, and the things that he saw wrong were generally things we knew about because we'd been looking at the same thing and had experts looking at it, but he'd found this on his own. There are some difficulties with it. It it doesn't give proper attention to quality of life. It doesn't give... It has small group deciding on the the value of death at different ages, all of that, which you know about. But nonetheless, the fact that he did this on his own, that's the kind of person you're dealing with. So, no, it's not that I suggested this. It's, uh, it was part of a big box of books, and he got to that himself. It's hard to express how I felt about this because um, you don't know that you're even being considered for this. There are no rules. There are yeah. no criteria. This is a presidential decision. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought to myself, for 50-plus years, I've actually done what I have wanted to do and enjoyed it. And so there's no need to acknowledge it. 
with a with an award uh that doing it is the award in itself uh, but you are yeah. along, alongside some uh, some other interesting characters um, madeline albright i i i heard was there uh, getting receiving an award john glenn right. and bob dylan that's right are you are you a dylan fan oh yes <laughs> in fact my boys um were recounting how it was always my job to give them baths at night, and so I would sit in the bathroom and uh, play the guitar and sing Bob Dylan songs to them, and they all grew up playing guitars and singing Bob Dylan songs. So there we have it, the fascinating life of Dr. Bill Fagey. Many thanks to him for his insights, and do look out for the profile in the current issue of The Lancet, dated June the 30th to July the 6th. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this extended podcast about a remarkable human being. Thanks for listening. See you next time.